0: We've been working on Create the Village for some time. Both the design and production of this podcast predated the COVID-19 crisis. However, we decided to push pause for the moment on the original show design so that we could launch the podcast and focus on some of the ways that COVID-19 is affecting community development. We're honoring the social distancing protocol, so you'll notice that we're conducting interviews by phone, and with Zoom. We're doing what we can to stay safe. I hope you are too. I am Egbert Perry, and this is Create The Village. Like everyone else, my perspectives are rooted in my experiences and training. For almost four decades, I've been navigating the business world. The last 25 years running a 300 person real estate company with the primary focus on sustainable community development. There's no doubt that my view of the world is shaped in part by that experience. And one of the things that is very clear to me is that the United States cannot regain and maintain its competitiveness on the world stage, while it effectively writes off a significant portion of its human capital by structurally limiting their opportunities. Disproportionately, African Americans are adversely impacted by the physical and economic conditions of their lives, too often trapped in communities that do not provide for economic or social upward mobility. Whether through structural issues like redlining home sales, excluding access to mortgages, constructing public housing and segregating by race, many communities were intentionally designed and managed to limit the opportunities of those who live there. Other than Native Americans, African Americans are the only people in this country that our government, at all levels, intentionally work to limit their opportunity for growth, development, and empowerment. The sordid legacy of purposeful, uncaring policies is on display for all to see. So, let's be clear the same intentionality that was used to disproportionately restrict African Americans to these conditions will be required to reverse them. My name is Egbert Perry and I'm the founder and CEO of the integral group. And this is create the village, a podcast that provides a platform where leaders from the private public and nonprofit sectors come together to speak candidly about the challenges facing American cities. A substantial number, not all, but too many African American communities, can be characterized by the following. The absence of good educational options leading to poor educational attainment, and absence of good grocery and food choices, if any food options at all, resulting in large number of food deserts. A lack of safe community spaces and basic neighborhood services. A lack of affordable housing in healthy neighborhoods, meaning that millions of African Americans are living in substandard conditions. A lack of access to adequate transportation and transit options, limiting the mobility of so many from the African American community. And finally, a lack of access to good health care, leading to poor health. In these features, you will find the foundation for the staggering statistics reflected in the impact COVID-19 is having in the African-American community. When the media reports that COVID-19 is impacting the African-American community disproportionately, a significant portion of the public does not understand why the virus has hit the community so hard. Generally speaking, It's no surprise to African-Americans, but to others, it obviously is. I thought a conversation would help us get everyone on the same page. So I reached out to two professionals who are on the front lines of this current battle, but who are also engaged in the larger war. Both are in great demand in the media and in public health strategy sessions as the country deals with the virus. I am thankful they could speak with us briefly. First up is Linda Gola Blount, the president and CEO of the Black Women's Health Imperative, with offices in Washington, DC, and Atlanta. Later in the show, I will speak with Dr. Kamara Jones. She is the 2019-2020 Evelyn Green Davis Fellow at the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study at Harvard University, and a past president of the American Public Health Association. In my conversation with Linda, I wanted to get her reaction to the very powerful column written by Charles Blow. If you haven't read it, we have it posted on our Facebook page, Create the Village. Blow's column is an important piece and well worth the read. He provides his readers with an alarming set of statistics and I wanted Linda's reaction to the piece. Here's our conversation. So why don't we start by just letting the audience know a little bit more about the Black Women's Health Imperative, what it does, and what your priorities are these days. Okay.
1: So the, the Black Women's Health Imperative uh, is actually the, the nation's only, uh, the only national Black organization focused on Black women's health and we have been for 37 years. Um, We were founded on Spelman's campus uh, 37 years ago when Billy Avery got a MacArthur Genius Grant and brought 2000 of her closest friends together to talk talk about self-care, how black women should prioritize their health. And so for 37 years, we've been focused on making sure women have the information, the tools, the strategies to practice self-care to understand what that is and, and what it means to advocate for our health. And we do that in the areas of chronic disease prevention and risk reduction, maternal health, reproductive justice, and of course, policy, because we really focus on those structural and policy barriers um, to living um, optimal, optimally healthy lives. And in the last few years since I've been with the Black Women's Health Imperative, I've brought Research. And so now we also translate research into the kinds of information and actions that black women need to understand how they engage with the healthcare system and to participate more fully in their own healthcare and in research to develop a new evidence base for caring for black women.
0: So so Linda, where do you who are your primary audiences and who do you target? your information to? Is it directly to the consumer, the black woman, or is it to organizations, governments, et cetera, as you try to impact the policy prescriptions?
1: Yeah, our consumers are really pretty varied, um, certainly to the everyday woman to help her understand and give her the information she needs to live a healthy life. But policymakers at both the national and state level our um, close constituents and stakeholders of ours i spend probably 20 25 of my time on the hill in dc and my team spends a, a lot of time talking with most mostly state but some local legislatures as well um, foundations are also a significant percentage of our stakeholders private and corporate because um, these are the folks who are helping to invest money in structural change and and helping and, and programs and initiatives at the community level. So we spend a lot of time advising foundations on where to put that money. We have, in the last seven years, invested more than $20 million in community-based initiatives. Wow. And um, obviously the research community is, is a constituency as well because we help them understand what needs to be done, how women are engaging with care and the healthcare system and what opportunities there are to to learn more about how to better improve black women's health
0: well you know there was a um a column recently a very powerful column in the new york times um it was written by charles blow mm. and he he cited some statistics in fact he said that blacks make up about 22 percent of the population of new york city but represents about 28% of the deaths from the virus. And I've actually heard even larger numbers than that. Yeah. Um, and then he mentioned some stats for New Orleans, Milwaukee, Chicago, where African-Americans represent 70 to 80% of the deaths, even though they are, their percentages are somewhere closer to half of those amounts. And yeah. so what does that information surprise you? If so, um, great, tell us why, and if not, why?
1: Yeah, no, uh, of course we're not surprised. Uh, About three weeks ago, I started asking the question, I actually wrote an op-ed, where is the data? Because the data were not being reported by race and ethnicity. They weren't weren't even being reported by gender. Um, And so I checked in with my colleagues at CDC who said, Yes, you're right. We, we understand. And that's about all I could get out of them. Um, CDC was not requiring this data to be reported. But states were collecting this data and and what we have now is hospital le- level data at, at the state level. We don't, we still don't know testing wise, you know, we don't have testing by race and ethnicity or gender, um, but we do have some hospital data and Back then, when I was asking the question, I was wondering, what if we applied the same disparities rates that we see in diabetes, in maternal mortality, in breast cancer, in cardiovascular disease to COVID-19, what would that mean? And you'll recall a few weeks ago, the Imperial College out of, out of the UK, but a number of organizations had done some projections. And so we did our own projections and applied the current um, disparities rates across a number of different conditions to COVID-19 based on their projections. At the worst case, if if the Imperial College projections had been correct, and and fortunately, they they don't seem to be, we were then looking at something like a million Black people dying from COVID-19. So now, ratcheting that back to the current projections, where if we put a stake in the ground today, and and we all physically distance, we minimize contact, we test, we contact trace we treat even under the best circumstances we're probably looking at 20 25 to even 30,000 deaths among african americans and hispanic latinos some say but even some say even more the issue we have is that deaths are underreported um, uh, in new york their estimate is that 40% of deaths are go unreported that is probably an under re- underestimate but if it's 40% of total deaths than at probably fifty to sixty percent of deaths among African Americans. So we really don't know right now, yeah. but we know there are disparities because we know how African Americans and Latinos in particular engage with the healthcare system. We know where testing is and isn't geographically, and we know with current levels of of warranted medical mistrust, many people are getting sick and simply dying at home and will never be counted. So, in fact, we will actually never know the true extent of the disparities of COVID-19 mortality.
0: Wow. Well, those stats are obviously very, very troubling. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I know that your organization has taken some steps to share that information with women in a very intense, intentional way. Uh, but what are some of the other proactive efforts you're aware of in the community today? And, and a question I would ask as you think about that is, are people really listening to the information?
1: This is really, really tough. Um, People have gotten very conflicting information. Uh, And and we hear from the the women that that our funded partners serve, what do I do? They say, wear a mask. They say, don't wear a mask. Um, They say, at one point, Black people can't get this disease. Oh, now Black people are dying from this disease. What do I do? So we launched a website two and a half weeks ago. Um, If you go to bwhi.org, you can see it. That that just has accurate, timely information on what COVID-19 really is, how you get it, who's impacted, what you can do to, to, to lower your risk. And then additionally, we're making sort of a set of resources available for people at the community level. What, what is happening, particularly around policy, with the CARES Act, who, has that, who can have access to paycheck um, protection dollars, small business loans, these kinds of things, so that people have a next step. When, when, you know, Whenever there's a disaster, whenever you get a bad diagnosis, your first question is, okay, what do I do? Women in particular need a plan. What is the next thing I do? So we're trying to make sure that, that women have a next step. And at a practical level, as as I look at the lived experiences of women, there's some really um, uncomfortable things to talk about, but very practical. So for example, I live in Atlanta. The Atlanta airport recently laid off some 55,000 employees. 70% are women. So now you've got these women who've lost the ability to support their families, and you take a, a woman In her 50s or 40s, she's got two or three teenage daughters at home, suddenly there's no money. Little things like menstrual products are hard to come by. They're very expensive. So we launched, um, this was months ago, before we even knew about COVID-19, a program to just deal with menstrual insecurity. But now with COVID-19, it has become critically important because women don't have the money to buy these products. And in states like Georgia, they are not considered basic necessities, oddly, and they've been taxed at the luxury goods rate. So they're about twice as expensive as they they really need to be. So we've launched this positive period campaign just to give these kinds of products to women to tide them over while they don't have jobs. On the policy side, we've been advocating to remove all the taxes from these products. So the new CARES Act says, okay, now you can get these products over the counter, no taxes, but you've got to pay for them out of your flexible spending accounts. Well, most of these women, you took the women at the Atlanta airport who work concession, but the hospital cleaners, the the cashiers, they don't have flexible spending accounts. So this CARES Act, while that's great for some women, does not address the need of low-income women at all. So we're trying our best to deal with these kinds of issues so women don't have to choose between their dignity and caring, taking care of the basic needs of their family. And we're trying to make sure that this is happening across the country.
0: Wow. Um, so you just addressed a subset of women. Um, and what I will say is, over the recent past, we've been hearing more and more about what studies are showing in the nation's health care system as to how it treats African-American women. Mm-hmm. Um, African-Americans generally, but let's say especially women, in that they're being treated less favorably than others, let's say. Um, What worries you about how this virus is being managed? And over the last 60 days or so, have you heard anything that is positive, encouraging, reason to be optimistic, et cetera? Because, you know, the news is pretty bad especially when you break it down and look at the African-American community and then break it down even further and think about women in the African-American community.
1: Yeah. You know, for, for women in general, healthcare is a challenge um, because of um, just the way we are treated with gender discrimination. Then you put on top of that racism. So you know, we talk about Black women living at the intersection of race and class and health um so one of the things that that we are hearing that concerns me is in general it's tough. if you show up at the emergency department with chest pains as a woman you're less likely for the staff to think oh you're having a heart attack if you're a black woman you're even less likely so if you show up at the emergency department now you are not likely to have your symptoms taken seriously and and i get it you know there's with, with COVID 19 going on, you don't want to be in the emergency department anyway. But if you have symptoms, you are still less likely to get them addressed. So we're, we're telling women and, and following, you know, advocating for this advice if you have symptoms, fever, cough, you know, malaise, call your doctor first. Um, but this points to the, the larger issue of how we are treated by the medical system, in the medical system. Doctors and nurses are still likely to assume we are drug seeking when we show up and talk about pain. They're not sure about rates of infection and so are less likely to take aggressive treatment where we're concerned. when We don't have good data, but there's some data to suggest that when you look at patients on ventilators, COVID-19 patients on ventilators, despite the disparity that we, that we are aware of now in terms of deaths among black and brown people, the majority of people on ventilators actually are not black and brown. So wow. this, this raises real concern about the way decisions are made to allocate healthcare resources in a time of crisis. And so I wonder what this means for the long term, because we don't know where this is going to end. I mean, it, it appears right now numbers are improving, that, that mortality rates are falling, rates of infection may be plateauing or declining, but we really don't know where this is going to go. And my concern is healthcare moves farther and farther away from Black and brown people and low-income people. And of course, a lot of people, um, and, and this will not be a surprise, are also afraid to engage with the medical care system because they don't know if they're going to get a bill at the end of all this. They don't know how much this is gonna cost. Testing should be free, but yet we see organizations offering tests for as much as $150. It is free, you're not supposed to pay for it. But people are concerned if they go in, get treated, survive, are they gonna be hit with a 30 or $40,000 bill? So we're really hoping, we're working to help people understand that that should not be the case, but then if it starts happening, to be able to direct them to resources to deal
0: with that, because they should not be hit with bills like that. Hmm. Wow. Uh, So you talked about COVID-19 and not being sure where all of this is going to go. In light of what's been revealed about this virus, what policy prescriptions would you put forth for consideration at both the federal and local levels? And, And you've implied some of it by virtue of some of your earlier remarks, but are there specific things that you would say should be put forth as policy prescriptions?
1: Well, you know, we need to test. We don't have enough resources to do general population testing. So from a from sort of the in policy, we need people to understand where we should be testing so that we can get some sense of what the transmission rates really are we need to look at where care is being given and you know there's been lots of conversation about how we prioritize care make sure people can get care so that means those states that haven't expanded medicaid need to expand medicaid you know when i think about pregnant women i have a staff person who's going to deliver i think about pregnant pregnant women who don't have health insurance who may be on medicaid medicaid covers you for 6 weeks we need much longer co- postpartum coverage than six weeks. It needs to be at least a year because we just don't know what's gonna happen. Um, we need to reopen enrollment so people can enroll. If they can afford to pay for health insurance, they can, re- they can enroll and get health insurance. They need coverage because there will be a, there's gonna be a long-term fallout for, for all of this. But also at the, both the national and state level, we need to look at how healthcare resources are allocated. In rural areas, we're closing down hospitals right and left. People may have to drive for hours just to get basic care. We have now put primary care out of the reach of a number of people. We need to make sure that there, there are care sites where people are and that they can actually access it, which means get to it and afford it. And we really need to step back and look at how healthcare resources are allocated. What can, What else can we do with nurse practitioners? and physician's assistance. Medicaid still requires that there's a physician in the room. We don't need a physician in a facility. Nurse practitioners can take care of primary care. Doulas, midwives can attend to, to births. So we, So I think this is going to be an opportunity, I hope anyway, to look at how our system is actually structured and make some different decisions about access, about coverage, to make sure that if We have another pandemic or even as we're dealing with this one, people have the opportunity to actually get the care that they need.
0: Linda, you know you're you're making my heart pound. This is obviously, no, really, this is obviously a very difficult subject to discuss. It's close to home, yet it's something that we know is not broadly known or not known enough about the disparities and people are expressing surprise and shock. I'm not particularly surprised that when it's negative, it's disproportionately allocated to, to the black community. And of course, with uh, both race and class, that's clear. Yeah. But then with the gender issue overlaid, it's also not surprising that it disproportionately works against women as well. So um, I understand and appreciate the heavy lifting you're doing. I respect what it is you're trying to do in the field. You're more than an advocate. You're a soldier on the field. And so I thank you for giving us your time, giving us a chance to help you express this. And we'll do, as the coverage of the podcast goes out, I'm hoping more and more people relate to the issues and the challenges that you're putting forth. And I thank you very much for for the time. Are there any closing remarks you would want to make?
1: No, I would just say thank you, um, Egbert, for doing this. It's really important to have these kinds of conversations and to share information that people can believe, <laughs> um, and that is for them and by them. Um, and I would just say to your your viewers, your listeners, you know, wash your hands, wash your hands, wash your hands. Don't touch your face. <laughs> Wear a mask. Um, but check in on people, check in on your friends, your neighbors, let them know how you're doing, find out how they're doing. Um, if you are able to get out safely, do some, pick up some food, pick up a meal for someone who can't get out, just stay connected. We are we are, we are, are physically distancing, but I don't want us to socially distance. I want people to know that their folks are still with them um, because this is gonna take a long time and My fear that I share with a lot of others is that the next pandemic is the mental health fallout from Mm COVID-19. So Um, uh, thank you for doing this. Um, This is really important. I appreciate it. And thank you for having me.
0: Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, bye-bye. For the second half of this episode, I was able to speak with Dr. Kamara Jones, an accomplished epidemiologist, family physician, and scholar. If you weren't already, you may have recently become familiar with her name because she's been a guest on many news shows and she's been outspoken when it comes to the racial dynamics of the virus and how the pandemic is playing out in communities of color, especially the African-American community. Because a part of her scholarship includes explaining race in a larger context of health, I asked her to share her perspective as to why this virus has hit the African-American community so hard. Here's our conversation. So I've been wanting to ask you this. I've watched a few of the things that I've been able to get online on you. How do you describe, given the breadth of subjects you cover, that are all very interesting, important dialogues that need to happen? across the country how do you describe yourself and what you do
2: so i describe myself as a family physician an epidemiologist and an anti-racism activist because as a family physician and an epidemiologist my work focuses on naming measuring and addressing the impacts of racism on the health and well-being of the whole society i am successful in having conversations about racism in this country where many people are in denial that racism continues to exist, much less have profound impacts on the health and well-being of the nation. At heart, I'm a teacher, and I'm an excellent teacher of epidemiology. I'm an excellent teacher in medicine, and I'm
0: an excellent teacher about issues of race and racism. So to the general public, and I want to go to COVID-19 for a moment. The general public, I included, uh, understands that the virus is non-discriminatory when it comes to your name, your race, your religion, and other constructs that we've created. Yet we're also all quite aware that COVID-19 is impacting the African-American community in greater numbers than any other community. What can you add to that narrative to help people understand why this virus has hit the African-American community so hard. So it is true that
2: in December of 2019, there was no human on this earth that was immune to this virus. And it is true that if there were equal opportunity across our land and equal exposure to risk across the land, then there would be no way, that we could slice and dice the population, no kind of way that we would see differences in infection rates or death rates, if that were true. Because we are seeing these differences by race, it's saying that there's something that is structuring opportunity, exposures, risk, resources differently by race. And that's something we call racism. My definition of racism is actually, it's a system of structuring opportunity and assigning value based on the social interpretation of how one looks, which is what we, what we call race, that unfairly disadvantages some, unfairly advantages others, and saps the strength of the whole society through the waste of human resources. So my short answer to why we're seeing this, given that the virus does not recognize, you know, there's no genetic basis to nothing, you know, there's no genetic basis to race. We need to be clear about that. There's no increased susceptibility what it is, is revealing the structural uh, divides in our society in a very vivid, vivid way. And the reason that we're sort of waking up to it when differences in the numbers of our babies dying before their first birthday also demonstrate those divides, that is the infant mortality rate differences. Differences in the numbers of our mothers dying in pregnancy-related births also demonstrates that divide, but with COVID-19, the bodies are piling up so fast that we cannot ignore or normalize that excess. I can tell you that racism is operating in two ways. The first way is that it is making it more likely that black folks are exposed to the virus and that they're not protected when they're exposed to the virus. So it's making it more likely that black folks are getting infected. Once infected, then because of the conditions of our lives in largely racially segregated communities, which are often disinvested, you know, toxic dump sites there, lack of fresh fruits and vegetables, lack of green space, lack of jobs, poor educational opportunities, and the like, that once infected, the burden of living in those kinds of communities has turned into excess diabetes in our communities and heart disease and the like. So once infected, we have the very same preconditions that have been shown to, to make people have the infection worse and to more likely to die from the infection. The other little piece of it, everything I've said so far has nothing to do with healthcare. It has everything to do with opportunity and our life experiences and exposures. But there's also perhaps a tiny role of healthcare because often in these communities overburdened by diabetes and health heart disease and the like, they often also don't have all of the, the hospitals with the fanciest or the highest number of ventilators and fully staffed and the like. So there's a little piece of health care. But the main thing I want people to understand that this is not something about susceptibility. This is not something about even health care. This is something about the conditions of our lives and opportunities, exposures, resources and risk and how they're differentially distributed in our society.
0: Okay, so so given that that's how it is defined and it's not a healthcare issue predominantly, or at least at the root cause, is there a broader message that this should drive? I mean, specifically, what impact should this reality have on our public policy at federal, state, and local levels?
2: That's a very important question. Thank you. Um, so the first thing to say is, my saying that it's racism doesn't mean like, oh, we have to throw up our hands, there's nothing we can do about it. Quite the contrary. If we were to react in that way, I have to tell you that the way that racism most often operates, especially kind of structural or institutionalized racism, you know, the kind of racism that doesn't require an identifiable perpetrator, the way that that most often operates is inaction in the face of need. So if we were to see these statistics about the black excess deaths and did nothing, then we would just be continuing the racist story of our nation. So the first thing is we must act. And there are two levels of action. There's the immediate action in the face of this COVID-19 pandemic, and then there's the long-term action. The immediate actions break along the ways that racism is operating. So it's causing increased infection because of increased exposure and less protection. The increased exposure is because we have more have more frontline jobs. So more likely to be the bus driver or in the warehouse or stocking the grocery shelves or being the cashier there or picking up the trash or cleaning the floors in the hospitals and the like. We're more likely to be exposed because we're in jobs where we wish we could stay home and shelter in place, but if we did stay home, we wouldn't get paid, no paid sick leave, all of the rest, and so just and no wealth. So so that we don't have the luxury of sheltering in place the way other people do so all of those things we can address by making it easier for people to shelter safely in place and for those essential workers who if they were to stop working if they went on strike or if they all died god forbid the, the whole system of other people sheltering in place would be broken there would you know there'd be interruption in the In the food supply chain and all. For those people, they need to be given adequate personal protective equipment, just as other essential workers are demanding that, and hazard pay. So that's on the infection side. On the side of once we're infected, we get it worse because we have these chronic diseases. First of all, we need to make sure that people can get the medicines that they need to keep. Uh, treating their chronic diseases, we need to make sure that we put health resources in those neighborhoods where we can already predict, based on the prevalence of diabetes and asthma and heart disease and kidney failure and the like, put more resources there. And we need to, for the whole picture, change how we are testing. So I'm saying this now, as an epidemiologist, as a public health, you know, professional. The way that we're doing testing right now is a very narrowly individual-focused testing to confirm a diagnosis in somebody who's already sick. Doing that kind of testing will document the course of the epidemic, but it will never change the course of the epidemic. To change the course of the epidemic, we have to widen our testing so that we are testing yes everybody who's symptomatic or even everybody who's curious but we also need to test a sample of the asymptomatic people because we know that at least 25% of people who get the infection are asymptomatic and those are the people who are likely to be the spreaders the continued spreaders of the disease we can change the course of the epidemic we don't have to just sit back and document the numbers of deaths
0: so so is that to say that You think the policies, and I'm not intending to be political here at all, um, is that to say that what you see coming out at the federal level and local level with respect to testing is largely reactive and you're suggesting that we need to have a different way that is more proactive or at least predictive in the way in which we go about testing otherwise We're not going to catch as many of the as much of the problem as perhaps we could. Is that a fair conclusion?
2: Yes, it it goes a little bit beyond that. Um, Yes, our current testing is reactive and ineffective in changing the course of the epidemic. We need a population based public health strategy to actually decrease increase the number of infections. So yes, so our testing, it's almost as if somebody muzzled the CDC because what I'm saying, every epidemiologist, you probably every public health worker at the CDC knows these things. So I have no idea what happened to the CDC. I'm not trying to be political either. I am just making the observation that this pandemic is being treated as if it were a medical problem when in fact it's a public health problem. And it needs public health solutions, not medical solutions.
0: In your recently published article in Newsweek, I noted that you cited the work that Congress is doing on the fourth COVID-19 rescue plan. Are there concerns that you have about that plan? If so, what causes those concerns? Or are you generally fine with what you're understanding the direction of that rescue plan is?
2: So, I haven't in the past two days or so been following um, the deliberations. So, I'm really not well uh, placed to comment on what is currently being proposed, but I know some things that we need, which is we need more support to real people to make it more feasible for people to safely shelter in place. So, we need to make not only testing for COVID 19 free, but all treatment for COVID 19 free. We actually also um the very our very reliance as a nation on employer-based health insurance is being blown out of the water with so many layoffs now and so many people filing for unemployment insurance they might have you know blue cross blue shield or kaiser or something like that but the health coverage of that person is through the employer when they leave there's cobra coverage and i don't know if people are able to do that for short term for you know a few months or something so i don't know what's happening right now but people are at risk of losing their healthcare coverage at all not just and it's it's in relation not just to covid but for their cancer treatments or for you know, their chronic asthma, that kind of thing. So this can be a really big problem. We, The, the fact that we tie health care insurance to the employer is always a problem when you change jobs, but it's especially a problem in massive unemployment. Right. So we need to ensure that people can get the health care they need even in the face of massive unemployment and whatever we're about to go into, recession, depression, or whatever. So the government needs to Reorient itself and not say that this is an employer problem, not that the health insurance should be so spotty as it has been. We don't have a U.S. healthcare system. We have U.S. healthcare systems with lots of holes and cracks that people can fall through. And so this is an opportunity for us to think about how do we develop not only a financing system but actually a, a system of care that's unified.
0: Okay, Dr. Jones, I want to thank you again for taking your time. I know you have. can I say very- one more thing?
2: May I say oh, one more Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, because when I was talking about the approaches, I talked about the sh- short-term kind of policy approaches, but I did say that I thought there was a long-term thing. And the long-term thing that we must do is just as we've been awakened to the existence and profound impacts of racism as manifest in the Black access deaths from COVID-19, we can't forget that. We can't forget that racism exists in this country in the way that... Maybe we were awakened a little bit with Hurricane Katrina and all the Black folks up on the, on the roofs and dying. Maybe we remembered a little bit with the poisoning of lent water supply, and then we forgot. And we remember so many times and we forget, and we cannot forget again.
0: Thank you very much for your time. Thank and- you very much. Create the Village is produced by Rick White. Directed and edited by Brennan Robison. Create the Village is a production of The Integral Group, LLC. Copyright The Integral Group, 2020.